Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice. I'm your host, Wendy Nystrom, and today's special guest is Stephen Winbrandt. He is the founder of Winbrandt Farms, which is an urban mini farm that became a gem of urban agriculture in Los Angeles. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. <laughs> Anytime. So before we dive into your farm, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because um, you started, you studied political science and government before going into farming. Um, what was that transition like? Why did you, what caused you to do that? I studied political science, philosophy and music at Humboldt State. Uh, it was an interdisciplinary studies major and it was really just my way of studying what I wanted to study, what I was really interested in and getting the piece of paper that says I know how to learn. And uh, I'm also a, a, a musician. I play the guitar and I sing and write songs. And so I, I, the way I pitched it to the, the panel of folks who uh, approve uh, interdisciplinary studies majors was that um, particular courses in political science, philosophy, and music would most prepare me in the context of the university in becoming a socially, politically, uh, environmentally, socially conscious singer-songwriter. That's pretty good. I like that. Thanks. That's pretty smart. But yeah, essentially, it was just a more focused liberal arts degree. And yeah. uh, I always think that I learned farming. I learned agriculture at Humboldt State, um, and I didn't. I went up there because it was a wonderful change from growing up in L.A., small town, uh, the, the glorious, pristine, old-growth redwood forests and, oh. uh, and, and turquoise salmon-studded rivers and secluded Paradise Cove beaches with big rocks out in the water with trees on them and just it was a it was an amazing change from growing up in in the city in la and, and a really like magical fairy tale wonderland and wonderful place to go to school um and that, then after, uh, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was an incredible experience and then i spent the, the next decade after college um traveling the world spending a half a year at a time in, in the himalayas of nepal and east africa mm -hmm. Uh, working on commercial fishing boats in Alaska. And when I was home in Los Angeles, I um, uh, sang songs with kids and families, taught values and ethics through the folk song and um, soccer enrichment programs, life skills through the game of soccer. And uh, I was a surf instructor and I ran a kid's beach camp and taught all the staff ocean skills and how to teach kids how to surf and create fun, safe experiences in the water. And, uh, and so I really pieced together all the things that I love when I'm passionate about and, and teaching others and facilitating uh, outdoor experiential uh, education. And, um, and then when I was 29, after my last adventure abroad, I came back to my childhood home and I was standing in the kitchen window looking out to the shaded field of weeds and 50 foot trees. And for like every reason under the sun, I decided I wanted to grow my own food. I wanted to be more connected to my food and understand where it comes from and how it's grown. Um, I, I was becoming increasingly distrusting, um, even of, of some of the food at farmer's markets, that the people who are selling it aren't necessarily growing it and really not knowing what questions to ask. What does organics really mean? And of course, the question is, how do you grow your soil? How do you take care of yeah. your soil? What are your soil fertility practices? 
Um, and, uh, and I wanted to create local economy and take the super out of supermarket and see if I could make money doing it. And I had this grand vision to grow every square inch of this backyard, this original 1940s small house and big backyard in oh. West LA. Um, I had this, this, this vision of growing every square inch of this 40 by 60 foot rectangle in food. And, um, I had never grown anything in my life. I had no idea how I was going to do it. And, um, and what came to fruition was far grander than my wildest dreams. And it has turned into a cent another central passion and a career and a calling and a mission. I think it's safe to say you're very much a doer and not a daydreamer. You actually think about this is what I want to do. I'm going to just do it and get it done, which is pretty spectacular. And um, I love the fact you're teaching children about um, uh, values and ethics because that's something very important. Every kid should have um, access to that. Um, so let's talk about your farm. And one thing you touched on was soil health, because I don't think people realize just how important the soil is, not just how you grow it, but what you're growing it in. Yeah. Sunshine and water are a given. You could have the most amazing soil in the world. You've got to have the sunshine. Actually, not for all vegetables. Lettuce, you don't need much sun. Tomatoes and eggplant, lots of sun. But, you know, sunshine and water, some newbie gardeners and even relatively not newbie gardeners um, can think that you, know, you spray the soil with the shower setting of a, of a hose sprayer for, you know, a minute or two and you see the top of the soil's wet and, it's, and the bed's watered. You got to get a lot of poundage of water on the top few mm -hmm. inches of soil. So over a period of hours, it, it, it sinks in. And if you water for two minutes, let's say on a four by eight foot bed, all that water, especially in Southern California, is going to evaporate. And so that four by eight bed may need 10 minutes, 15 minutes oh, wow. of water a couple times a week to get that water down to the root zone. So sunshine and water are given. Past that, the whole key to everything is the soil, is growing our soil, is feeding our soil, is, is, is returning to it what we are partnering with Mother Nature and I don't want to say taking from it, but like the plants need nutrients and uh, macronutrients and micronutrients and minerals and uh, microbes, a whole soil oh, web of different microbes um, to grow their best, to grow their most vital and disease and pest resistant and to their full potential. And so um, when I say soil fertility practices and growing soil, the cornerstone to me of what that means is making compost. And there is a set of practices in organic, biodynamic, regenerative agriculture, permaculture, all these buzzy words that all have stuff in common, mean similar things, have crossover. And, but, you know, call what you will, sustainable agriculture. Like, it's just things that we're doing to work in deep harmony with Mother Nature. Working Absolutely. And working in harmony as opposed to working against her because when we work against her, things, things don't work out. And we work with her, we get... Um, fabulous, miraculous, extraordinary results um, in what grows from the living skin of the earth and in our, and how that translates to our nutrition and how that translates to the planet's nutrition. That yeah. healthier soil is, amongst many other things, the more carbon it can sequester from the atmosphere and trap yeah. in the soil where it belongs to effectively halt and mitigate and potentially even reverse climate change. And so it all, soil health equals plant health, animal health, 
human health and planet health. And so the cornerstone in my learning from my mentors is making compost and making it the best we can, the most virtuously we can as a high art for the living skin of the earth's optimal nutrition. And we're doing many different things when we're composting. But one thing that we're doing is very much like taking cabbage and chopping it up and putting it in a salt brine and making uh, kimchi or sauerkraut and proliferating good bacteria for our guts, lactobacillus. Oh, I love that stuff. When yeah. we're composting, we're growing microbes like that. We're growing actually a lot of the similar microbes that are healthy for our guts. And we're reading more and more articles and more and more science is coming out about the <laughs> gut-brain connection. And we are able to be in, in our optimum health when we have the optimal set, uh, optimal set of microbes in our guts. And so it's very much the same for the soil. There's this, there's this soil food web, these, these cast of characters from the, the, um, the, the bacteria and the fungi moving up to the protozoa like amoeba and then nematodes, these microscopic uh, creatures that we can only see under a microscope that, um, that there are millions of in a tablespoon of healthy soil that they have a plethora of, of, of extraordinary um, effects on the soil. Um, and, and I would say the most simply said is they, they cycle nutrients, they process nutrients in the soil and they make nutrients more available to plants. So they yeah. give plants access to higher levels of nutrition. And so the more abundance of all these casts of characters and their diversity, the healthier and more disease and, and pest resistant plants can grow. And when the plants have more nutrition, we have more nutrition. And that's what I've been all about since the very beginning of my career growing food. Um, just as I was preparing to, to break ground, to dig my first beds, I was connected to a man, one of the most amazing people and probably all of the West Coast I could have met who lives right up the street from me in West LA, a veteran um, organic biodynamic farmer who learned from the wisdom of Alan Chadwick and John Jevons at UC Santa Cruz in the 70s. He took me under his wing and he said, Stephen, you got to make, for what you want to do, you got to make tens of thousands of pounds of compost in your backyard. And... Um, People are going to think you're nuts, but I see you. You've got it in you, and you're going to grow the most amazing food people have ever seen. And that first, my maiden growing season, there were veteran permaculture designers and edible garden builders who came into my backyard and said, what the heck are you doing back here, kid? And they would say, don't tell me it's your compost. What are you spraying on these vegetables? Don't tell me. It's and then a couple of years later, when I started making compost professionally, they became my best clients. And my results were unparalleled. I made... I made 10,000 pounds of compost before I ever grew any food. And it took me a half a year to do that. I had a 20 cubic yard load, a huge truckload of horse bedding from the LA Equestrian Center dumped on the front lawn. It was never a lawn again after that. I went to a raw vegan restaurant every night in the shadows at midnight and picked up like 20 or 50 pounds of, um, of, of vegetable scraps and composted that. And it was far better than anything I could buy on the market. And that's a whole other story that we really can't mu get much of any good compost on the market. We can do much better to make it ourselves. So that's how I made my first compost. And then I witnessed the most glorious, miraculous results. And I will never forget 
every single vegetable I ate, it was like I'd never tasted it before. The broccoli, you know, it's like the opposite of that hard stuff that's on the platter with ranch dressing. Like I would take it straight from the plant and it just, it tasted like candy. And yeah. the first vegetables, the first, the kale and the collards and the chard, this first glorious greens bed that I grew, I couldn't even pick the food. The leaves were getting so big and like, you got to pick the leaves when they're really big. So more leaves can grow. And, um, oh. and it, the bed can keep producing, but it looks so beautiful. And I was so just odd and just thought it was the most amazing, miraculous thing that everything grew so well and that, and that I had a part in it, but it really wasn't, it wasn't all me. It was like, I was in, I'm in partnership with, with mother nature and, and the, and the divine, the eternal <laughs> Jedi force. Um, and, and so that was, I'll never forget that. And I keep that really close to my heart and it always, and it keeps me humble because it's a lot more, you know, my efforts matter a whole lot, but it's a lot more than me that's, that's, that's doing this all. So that's kind of, that's how I got started. And then, um, and then I very quickly started teaching workshops on how to grow uh, food organically really, really well. And a whole lot of it really, really well in the urban environment. And, um, and I brought thousands of people into the backyard that would then have 13 beds that were four and a half feet wide and 15 oh, wow. feet long. And, and then, um, the, the backyard would have ginormous compost windrows, like out of a pastoral farm scene, six, eight feet wide, five feet tall, 45 degree sloping sides, like huge piles of organic matter. And we'll talk soon about what compost is. And exactly. <laughs> So yeah, so it evolved really quickly and I was donating to food banks and selling uh, specialty greens that I grew to chefs and restaurants in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, my, so my first mentor, uh, Michael Capel, um, who learned at UC Santa Cruz, he taught me how to initially make compost and, and, and it's essential role um, in, in organic agriculture. And then farmer Jack, my second mentor, uh, a world-class biodynamic farmer and compost maker who's from a lineage of some of the world's most dedicated biodynamic compost masters of the 20th century, um, took me under his wing after he learned about my experience and my, um, my spiritual bent and things. Um, and he said he'd make me my protege and teach me everything he knew. And he brought, uh, a truckload of cow manure and a couple bales of alfalfa to my backyard and we spent the day making compost and and i went to uh to see the compost that he made on uh the only biodynamic farm in topanga that no longer exists but it was a very special place um and um and the food i saw growing in this in this farm was maybe the only food that was more impressive to me than what i was growing in my backyard and everything just had auras around it it was perfect and and uh and I knew the whole, the secret is his compost. And I said, oh, yeah. I got to learn how to make this. And he taught me how to make it. And I said, I want to, I want to make this for people. People can't get anything like this. And he said, you could make 30,000 pounds back here in your backyard. And I knew at that moment what he meant. It meant making windrows, huge piles of compost over all these beds that I had dug and cultivated with all my blood and sweat and tears. And at that very moment, I foresaw my future. And I started bringing tens of thousands of pounds of cow manure and dozens of bales of alfalfa hay into this backyard in West LA and making these huge, like 20,000 pound compost piles. And I sold it solely by word of mouth from my backyard. I bagged it up and put it in my truck and drove it to the Palisades and Palos Verdes and Silver Lake and Malibu and Hollywood and, and oh, all wow. that place. And, um, and word got out that this 
kid in West LA makes the best freaking compost anyone's ever heard of. And, and it's all about the results. People didn't have to, they don't have to use anything else. No potions, no powders, no tonics, just virtuously anaerobically that's with air decomposed organic matter into its smallest, most broken down parts. And that's what compost is. It is, it is organic matter that is decomposed in an aerobic way, aerobically decomposed. So that's with oxygen. Anaerobic is no oxygen. That's the mm -hmm. landfill. And that's why things don't compose and all that's sorts of <laughs> Right. And so composting is the aerobic decomposition of organic matter. I think that's my simplest definition. And so just, just to recap, because you covered, you covered a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, most people, they think, okay, I've had, I've got a garden. I'm going to the store. I'm going to buy the fertilizer, sprinkle it on top or mix it with water. That's probably not the best idea because it's all chemicals. You're providing the compost. And this isn't stuff that you just, you know, you grab your vegetable waste and throw it in your backyard and you say, yay, compost. No, that's, that's just going to rot and you're going to have vermin. You're going to have issues. You are the king of compost. You have been named that. That has been your given name because you are taking, I feel bad for your neighbors with all the horse manure and cow manure, but you're taking it and you are mixing and aerating it, which is providing that oxygen so it can properly decompose and make this compost. And I do love the fact when you talked about the broccoli that was fresh tasting like candy, I'm a little jealous. I've never once tasted that in my life. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I grew up in a place where nobody grew their own vegetables. We went to the supermarket yeah. and this was Michigan. So it wasn't exactly local. Not in the wintertime, at least. So right. <laughs> which is, this is all fascinating to me because I don't think people fully understand that, you know, you do have to do it properly. You do have to compost properly. The, the food dehydrators that are being sold as the composting, that's a bad idea. I mean, at first I'm like, I want one. I can dehydrate it and throw it in my backyard. Once it gets wet, you're going to have rubbish. It's not decomposed. So People need to understand that, that this is a whole process that you are going through, that you are providing as a service and, um, and your workshops. Oh, I'd love, I'd love to hear more about your workshops. Cool. I, um, I want to mention the um, food dehydrators that like <laughs> try and say they're composters just for a moment and they're not worth much of discussion in our, we got more important things to talk about, but I do want to say they're a complete joke and it's um, some of the nastiest greenwashing of the 21st century that's happening. Um, it's not at all compost, right? There are many, it's, it's, it's a, it, the product, the end product has no value and, um, and causes problems in the garden. The energy that it takes to do the next to nothing that it does basically chop up and dehydrate is off the charts. And it's literally the worst thing we can do with our food waste. It would be better to, um, simply put it in our green bins, Los Angeles. We just, it's too little, too late, um, but um, we're finally able to put our food waste into our organic screen bin along with um, lawn clippings and tree branches and things like that. And I say that um, next to the landfill, that's the worst thing that we can be doing with our food waste. But at least potentially, um, as long as the waste haulers aren't lying to us, that now that's being diverted from the landfill and not going to the landfill. But those dehydrator things are much worse than that. Um, that's all I'll say about that. There are a lot yeah. of videos on YouTube that people can um, learn more about why those are a total sham and they're the opposite of what people think that they're doing and helping the environment and doing something good. Yeah, because um, you can't just throw it in your backyard. You can't just take that material and say, okay, now I have I have compost because it's it's simply not. That's right. 
That's right. It's chopped up, dehydrated food. Yeah. 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 That's not good. Amongst other things, not good for the soil. Plants are not going to grow well. Even the companies say, like, don't mix more than 10% of this in with the soil. Like, it's, I didn't know that. <laughs> on to um, uh, the opposite of that, which is um, working in partnership with nature and um, taking responsibility for our waste streams, our organic waste streams, and um, doing the very best that we can do, which is keeping our carrot tops and lettuce bottoms and um, hopefully not very much, but like maybe a little meat that we don't eat and a little bread. And also, you know, I scratch my head. It's like, why is there so much food waste? Why do we have other than the very top of the carrot and the very bottom of the lettuce only in this time with such consumption? Yes. Conspicuous consumption and overabundance. Yeah. Just made up that word. It's like, why do we have any, why, why is there so much food wasted? Like, what's the story with that? And, and where did we get to as a society and a culture to think that it's okay to not eat stuff, to let stuff go bad in the fridge? It doesn't matter what you want to eat. This stuff is about to go bad. This is what we're eating. We got it. And if it's not eaten, we better feed it to our rabbits and our dogs and our cats. And if they're not eating it, the last resort, as much as I'm in love with composting and it's very much the center of my life and world, that's the last resort. Yes. And we should have less food waste in the first place. And what are all the things that we can be doing, all the different steps in all parts of the chain from home consumption, restaurants, our schools, or we can just have less wasted because it's yeah. just less everything, right? It's less, it's less, we don't have to produce that much food in the first place. We don't have to provide the transportation and the labor and the packaging and the fuel and the, the all the steps to get it to all the places where then it doesn't even get eaten. Oh my gosh. And so how can things be done in a much more conscientious, intentional? Um, but also the local growing that you do is important. Um, could you explain to people the nutritional value of actually having something more local than shipped 5,000 miles over. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, there's just so much there. It's like the, the microbes in your bioregion. I mean, microbes are everywhere. They're on our skin. They're in there. They're in the earth. They're everywhere and they matter. And they're a big deal, even though we can't see them. And so having stuff that's grown locally in our bioregion that's adapted to our climate and our culture, um, provide both, um, physiological, biological, chemical, and, um, energetic spiritual implications that all make a huge difference in our nutrition. Um, but I'd say, yeah, the local bio to really bring it down to earth here. Um, the local bioregion is it's going to be that much fresher. There's nothing like eating a vegetable minutes or hours after it's picked after it's harvested or even days. I mean, the stuff in our supermarkets, which Weeks. by the way, that's, I love, I love this soundbite of mine. Like I wanted to take the super out of supermarket when I started to grow my own food. And um, also, Wendy, before I grew my own food, I never grew my own food either. I didn't know what broccoli tasted like. <laughs> all like I tasted that first bite. I hated tomatoes. I couldn't stand them. And I, but I grew tomatoes because I know people flip out over their tomatoes and love their tomatoes. And I was ready to harvest the first ones. And I was positive that I wouldn't be able to stand the taste of them because I've never liked them. And I walked over to the compost pile as I was about to take my first bite because I knew I was just going to spit it out. And I took my first bite and I spit it out like autopilot. And then I went, wait a minute. And I, I took another bite and I just started to tear 
And for the first time ever, I was, I loved it. I loved the taste of it. It's like I had never, and ever since then, every year, I wish I had one right here. And another, I just ran in from the field. So I don't have this right now. I wish I did. I would usually have a silver platter of my compost right here. <laughs> and a big fat. Okay, I got one of these right here. Run for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm the heirloom brandywine tomatoes I grow every summer. And they're just, I mean, every, I mean, some of the best chefs in LA are just like, Stephen, grow, bring me whatever you're growing. I can't buy anything like this, even from the farm. Oh, wow. And you just bring me, of your head. you just bring me whatever you're growing. And, um, and I grow. Yeah. I mean, we can just do, so we can locally grown small scale. We can, we can pay so much more attention and give so much more love to every square foot, every square inch of our soil. And um, in the highest circles of organic, biodynamic, regenerative agriculture, farms are making their own compost and making it well. But with the exception of this small elite group, most farms are not making their own compost. And if they're even using it at all, they're buying it from like municipalities and industrial manufacturers. And so this gets into like why the Green Bay waste stuff is so bad. This stuff, um, you know, our food and our lawn clippings, lawn clippings with, you know, the worst pesticides known to humans. Um, yeah. forget, forget stuff where like humans have to wear full body suits to spray strawberries with those pesticides that are sanctioned to be put in people's bodies. Only in this country. Unreal. Yep. These are pesticides like aren't even sanctioned to be around people. Like you're not supposed to ingest this stuff, you know, Roundup and glyphosate and just the worst, nastiest abominations of chemicals that have no place for anything on this planet ever. Um, by the way, I'm, we'll just add that for the record. Pesticides are never needed ever, never, ever, anywhere, ever. Fungicides, herbicides, pesticides, they are, they have no place on this earth for any purpose. We don't need them. And it's, and, and, and society has been fooled by the chemical companies that we need them to grow food. And it's, and it's a lie. It's a sham. Um, anyway, um, so, so, um, that's all in our green bin. I mean, yeah. dog poop, motor oil, pesticides, anything and everything people throw in there. And then that goes to a huge industrial facility and sits in ginormous piles that is not aerobic. There is no way that oxygen mm -hmm. is getting into piles that are 30, 40 feet tall. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And so there are massive amounts of greenhouse gases being released, methane, CO2, ammonia, and it is not an environmentally friendly practice. And they have a huge uh, 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 rent bill on their on their land, and oh, they yeah. have to pile this stuff up in huge piles. And it's called turn and burn in the industry. They're literally just uh, they're turning the shit out of it, and um, and then they got to ship it out to make a profit. And there's not much profit there. It's really not composting. It's 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 um, pulverized organic matter is what they're making and it's, and it's waste reduction, but they have co-opted big industry has co-opted the term compost because there's so much value associated with it. And oh, wow. so that's, what's happening with our, you know, the, 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 the waste reduction industry and calling it compost. It's really not compost. And, and when our organic matter goes to these places, it's the second worst thing that, that can be done with it um, next to being put in the landfill. And on the other side of that, when we're making it like, like a, you know, it's the, it's, it's, I would say it's like, 
you know, Jack in the box I'm and McDonald's and like Wolfgang Puck, like a, like a gourmet chef, Michelin starred chefs and restaurants and like fast food. But it's yeah. actually even a wider disparity than that. It's the analogy is not even good, but that's, that's the closest thing I can get to right now. Like it's a good analogy though. It gives you, it gives you a frame of reference. Yeah. But um, as gourmet chefs in the kitchen, when we're making compost as a high art and putting together different kinds of organic matter really virtuously, then we are um, not releasing any gases. We're trapping and storing carbon and we are proliferating tons of a huge diversity of microbes and we are um, keeping the nutrients in the nitrogen for instance in the compost and um, we have control over what ingredients are in our compost we know what's in there what after it's decomposed what's going to be feeding the our garden beds our farm fields and so it's it's beyond a night and day difference this this quality a lot of stuff that is called compost shouldn't even be called compost and then not all compost is created equal and um oh, i gotta just run and just so quickly i think i'm just gonna i think i'm just gonna do this nancy say something to your viewers wendy first of all my name's wendy not nancy we'll start with that <laughs> I guess he's run off to get some compost <laughs> and I don't edit. So this is actually going to be just, you know, people hanging out, wondering what's going on. This is important. I just had a meeting with a Nancy at seven 30 in the morning today. Um, that this. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really dark. Most compost I see is pretty light brown. We're going for, we're going for 90% dark chocolate. And when we, like that reference. when we squeeze it like this, you're going to see here water coming out. You see that drip? Yeah, it's dripping. And then when I touch it like this, it just breaks apart. And this is the structure that we're looking to create in soil. This is... This is the most virtuous housing for all of the microbes that live in the soil and the humic and the fulvic acid that is in this is the amount of humus, the amount of fully broken down organic matter, which most compost doesn't have. That's what we're looking to feed the soil. That's the stuff. That's the magic that grows everything with superior nutrient density and disease and pest resistance and that's the art so that's what we're looking to create and the way we do this is understanding some basic things now we can get lucky people sometimes can get lucky and if you just get it right you kind of sort of can chuck your food in the back of the backyard in a pile and make some thin layers of food and wood chips Oh. And keep it and keep it wet, kind of like a wrung out sponge. But it's like in Southern California, you have That's to water hard. your compost like your garden bed. You tend to it. It's not just something oh, it's over there and you don't look at. Dig in it and see what the moisture is like, and water it like you water the garden. And yes, in our urban and suburban and, and rural environments, um, depending on the area, if it's not in something that's enclosed, then 
it can attract pests. However, if there's enough of a carbon layer, ingredients such as wood chips or straw over it, sometimes animals don't dig into it. If it doesn't have food, um, for instance, my cow manure alfalfa compost, animals weren't attracted to. But with food waste, I build, and this is getting into, and we can talk about this in a moment, but the programs and the system that I've created for schools and organizations to compost yeah. thousands of pounds of food waste on site, I make 100% pest-proof containers for them. They're custom-built huge containers that can hold a couple thousand pounds of food waste. And, um, mm -hmm. and so um, pests can't get in. Pests also aren't attracted to it because the mixture is right. There's an outside layer of wood chips that are kind of insulating the food waste so animals don't really smell it. If they smell it a little... Even if they try and get in, they can't get in, but it's not something where um, there are, are smells associated with it. And so when we're doing everything right, it's not a stinky, smelly, slimy mess. It's true yeah. that most of LA's compost piles um, where we live, um, I know this is national, but um, probably in most- International. Are <laughs> international, amen. Are, are either a, um, an anaerobic- slimy, stinky mess. There's too much moisture. There's too much green material. Forget the color, but we call green material higher nitrogen material. Um, okay. I won't go into that too much more unless you want me to, but green materials are anything from um, plant matter that was cut when it was alive, seaweed, coffee grounds, even though coffee grounds are brown, seaweed's brown. Um, we consider them higher nitrogen ingredients, food waste, animal manures are all higher nitrogen. And then the higher carbon ingredients are um, straw, wood chips, um, dead leaves, leaves that um, fell from the tree when they died. If we cut the tree and the leaves are green, those are considered green, higher nitrogen. Now, I will just go into this. Every ingredient, except for maybe human blood and urine, I think is one-to-one -one carbon to nitrogen. Almost all organic matter has more parts carbon than it has parts nitrogen. But the higher nitrogen, green ingredients, we call with ratios that are like 15 to 1 or 20 to 1 carbon to nitrogen or lower. And so food waste, for instance, is it could be 10 to 1, 12 to 1. It's not an exact thing. Cow manure, 12 to 1, 15 to 1. Other manures, 15 or 20 to 1. Maybe it's dry. Maybe it's rotted and aged. Um, seaweed is 8 to 1, 10 to 1. And then... Straw, for instance, so above 20 to 1, straw is 60 to 1, 60 parts carbon, one part mm -hmm. nitrogen. So that's, we call that a brown ingredient, carbon ingredient. Wood chips, what from softwood to hardwood, could be anywhere from 250 parts to 600, 600 to 1 mm -hmm. carbon to nitrogen. So what we do is we layer or mix the greens and the browns. And so there's really advanced mathematical calculations can you can do because it's not simply just green and brown, right? It's not even different wood chips are, are different. And we want to get this 20 to 1 or 30 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio mix of the ingredients when we put everything together. But I would say, forget that. If you just take a inch layer of food waste and put an inch or two inches of wood chips on top of it, it's going to decompose nicely. And oh, ingredients okay. like wood chips provide natural aeration. So if you don't make the pile too big, the airspace that dense wood chips provide keeps the pile 
relatively aerated. And so you can use an ingredient like wood chips, which I highly recommend, especially for beginner composters, but for everyone, because it really encourages the fungal component of, uh, of the compost pile to grow and proliferate. Um, is to, um, if we have the, um, you know, the four-sided plastic bins, for instance, that are mostly pest proof, I've seen rats chew through that thick plastic, but those four-sided containers, the only thing that's missing from them that the companies don't tell you is put one fourth inch hardware cloth at the bottom of them. So animals can't dig under and come into them because they have no bottoms. They just sit on the earth. But if you just do a layer, one inch layer of food, one inch layer of wood chips, one inch layer of food, one inch layer of wood chips, or go two inch layer of wood chips, two to one wood to food, then you've got a good general recipe right there. And if you want to even play it really safe, if this is the footprint, go a couple inches in on every side and just leave a couple inch band around the edge where there's no food and put wood chips there too. It's kind of something you have to craft a little bit, but you can make an insulating layer of wood chips around the edge. And that also ensures we haven't talked about this yet, but when there is a proper ratio, and again, it's not an exact thing. Some different ratios can work. It can work right here as a super sweet spot. It can work here. It can work here. But after this area, it's either going to be super dry and you can read the chopped up, shredded up newspaper print a year later and the compost doesn't do anything, or it's an anaerobic, slimy, stinky, nasty. Yeah. That happens a lot. In between, it's a sweet spot. It doesn't have to be exact, but it's somewhere in there where it's really happening. It happens slow. It's delayed gratification. You can have it happen quicker by turning it, but you don't need to turn it. And potentially, you can even make better compost when you don't disturb it, when you don't turn it and just let it be for a long time. And uh, yeah, so those are some kind of tips and things. I could keep going on that. I know we only have. Well, most importantly, I want people to know how they can find you because you have workshops because not everyone's going to be able to, to grasp all the tips that you gave them here. Yeah. They should actually be working with you and, um, you know, contracting with you on how yeah. to do this properly. So, so what are some ways that people, I mean, if let's say people who live in Los Angeles and people who do not live in Los Angeles, yeah. what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah. Thanks for asking. So, yeah. um, I do consulting and I do it on all scales from the home scale to municipalities. And uh, I've made compost with five cubic yard loader buckets with tires as tall as me and loader buckets that can pick up a car and huge compost turners, huge machinery. Um, and I've done that with making Windbrand Farms compost in Northern California um, for the commercial market. And, um, and I love composting on the home scale. And, uh, and I also... Um, consult for and teach farmers nationally and folks who um, manage and steward lands, different kinds of lands, pasture lands and orchards and vineyards and create custom compost programs and solutions with their feedstocks, with the different kinds of organic matter they have access to and make recipes and protocols and a set of best practices for them to most uh, officially, uh, efficiently, and um, and and exactingly, like make the best compost they can make on their lands with their equipment, with their mm -hmm. feedstocks. And so, what I've been really focused on doing over the last few years is developing a system. And those are the containers that I referred to a little while ago, the pest-proof containers. They stand 
Um, they're four feet wide, five feet tall, and they're cylindrical. And they are placed on the sites of schools and organizations. And an organization or a school could have two of them. They could have 10 of them, depending on how many people are eating lunch every day, for instance, depending on how much food waste they create. And I've created a system and a program that brings down all the barriers to make it possible for the first time ever, I dare say, the first time that I have ever seen for organizations to compost on their campuses, on site, in a way that is um, safe, responsible, and consistently successful, and realistic for their, um, their team whoever that is, a group of teachers, teachers and students, maintenance, other volunteers. But um, there are all these you know, connotations with composting that you have to turn it and you're turning thousands of pounds of ingredients. That's not realistic at all for a school to do. It's just too many, too much labor, too much yeah. work. Um, that compost smells, um, that they're just funky smells, especially from coming from rotting food waste that pests are attracted um, all these different things that make it so schools and organizations don't even want to touch, don't even want to mess with composting. And so I have with all my pretty rare niche expertise and experience, um, have, 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 have removed all of these barriers. So there are no smells, no pests, no flies. It's auto watered. There's no turning. It's like 90% less labor and it's doable for schools right down the street that have three, five, 600 kids for a team of two or three teachers to compost all their food waste in like two to three hours a week. That's fabulous. And so this is what I see as a huge, one of the key pieces to creating more resilient schools, organizations, communities, and a society in the 21st century, where as much as we possibly can, we are, um, we are recovering and transforming, i.e. composting our food waste on the site where it was created and using it there, using it in the garden, using it on the grass. I mean, the grass fields grow better than they have yeah, ever grown. With our droughts that we're fighting, that's really important. <laughs> yes. Compost, um, virtuous compost has extraordinary water holding capacity and increases the water holding capacity of soil um, exponentially. Um, the benefits of compost, we could spend an hour just talking about that, like what compost does for the soil and why we need it everywhere. And you can never have enough. And they can put it on rose bushes and shrubs and flowers and herbs and gardens and fruit trees and non-fruiting trees anywhere and everywhere uh, where there is earthen space. Um, so that's, that's what I spend most of my time doing now that and making my products compost and compost tea. And actually I was holding up the compost tea. It is really finely sifted compost. Um, yeah. it has a plethora of amazing ingredients from, uh, the only organic alfalfa hay grown in all, all of Southern California to seaweed that I wild harvest with my hands from the beach a few miles. Hey, out. I go swimming every Friday. I can grab you a couple buckets and deliver. Oh, perfect. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and so that we take it and we liquefy, we take this compost and we mix it in water and we make a liquid out of it and we can pour it and spray it everywhere. We can use it as a foliar spray, um, that it's a great preventative, um, to strengthen the immune system of plants, um, oh, yeah. spray it on the soil, 
pour it on the soil. And so we're basically liquefying compost. And so I make products. I have this program and the system that I um, said that I partner with schools and organizations to um, all their food waste. And so that's also, I consider that my consulting because when I team up with them, I teach them, I don't just do the service for them, but I teach them how to compost in the way that I compost and make them as self-sufficient as they aspire to be. So I don't have to be there all the time, but they are that they learn. Yeah, no, the learning, the learning curve is very important because, you know, you've given a wealth of information that not everyone's going to be able to hold on to from just watching. They need to learn. They need that one-on-one experience, the teaching method. Just, and also so it can, they can teach others because we do need to kind of go back to the way things used to be rather than relying on chemicals. And just as one of my professors would say, we put all of our plants on life support and we just keep pumping them with chemicals and just trying to keep them alive. And it's a huge mistake because ultimately we're killing that soil and we're killing all the organics in the soil. And we need to go back to the original ways of using the compost and using our food scraps and putting it back in the soil properly and growing it properly. So um, on that, um, thank you so much. I know today was crazy busy for you. So thank you for making the time. And um, guys, please check out Winbrandt. It's W-Y-N-B-R-A-N-D-T Farms. Check out his website. And take the take the workshops do the classes take the consulting because it's very important that we learn how to do this properly and use our compost and learn what compost is it's not just throwing stuff in the backyard and letting it rot that's that's garbage that's bad you want to do it properly so um steve closing thank you so much this is fabulous um you're, you're doing a great thing. You really are. Thanks, Wendy. I really appreciate you and your podcast and um, bringing, um, you know, potentially very technical uh, stuff down to earth. And I think really at its core, we should be able, no matter how advanced the technology, I think this is really advanced and also um, ancient. And yeah. um, we all have it in our blood, in, our, in the stories of our ancestors. And it's what we always did before we got away from it. Um, yeah. We always, we, we, we there were closed loops. Now there are all these open loops where things go out and away. And of course there is no way, but the no best way. thing we can do is, um, is, is close the loop, close the loop on our, our organic waste stream, close the loop on a lot of things in our lives, but our organic waste streams and um, make medicine for the living skin of the earth that heals the earth and that heals us and our communities. I want to say that I don't have regular workshops at this time for composting, but that I, consult on all scales. So I just want to encourage anyone and everyone who's um, listening in on your podcast, if they have questions for me to get in touch via email. Um, And um, I, no matter how busy I am, I like to think that um, at least when I'm zooming around places in my truck, I'm happy to talk to folks and answer questions. And, um, and yeah, I kind of, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really committed to, uh, to sharing the knowledge and to um, making a mark on society with helping us um, get back to living closer to mother nature, to the sources that sustain us and to elevate our health and vitality and well-being. And it all goes together, plant health, soil, plant, animal, human, planet health. It is one chain reaction. We are all connected. And um, so on that, thank you so much, Dave. I'm Wendy Nystrom, your host with Environmental Social Justice. Please check out Winbrent Farms. Check out what Stephen is doing. Hire him to consult. This is important work. We need to we need to go back to you know the basics. 
fix what we broke. On that, Stephen, thank you again for your time. You guys have a great day. Thanks, Wendy. Bye-bye.